Hi, I'm Laura Cousineau, and welcome to another music podcast where I, Laura Cousineau, tell you about some music history, how it relates to the world around us, and hopefully introduce you to some new tunes. Given this is the inaugural podcast of my series, I'd like to introduce myself to you guys. So as I said, my name is Laura Cousineau, I'm in my mid-20s, I'm currently attending the University of Toronto as a master's student, uh, hoping to apply for and get into a PhD program this year at the University Centre for Social Justice Education. Uh, currently, my focus is studying Eastern European minority musics and cultures, pre- preferably Jewish and Roma musics, but you know how it is with music, and uh, how we may use those musics to help decrease instances of prejudice against those groups. I didn't just start studying music, however, in university. I've really pretty much been into it my entire life. I started singing when I was about old enough to speak. Uh, growing up, my house was just full of music. My parents were both into classic rock. Uh, Dad strayed a little bit more towards southern rock as we grew up, though, and my mom brought a love of Motown and folk into my life as well. Uh, My older sister introduced me to punk and metal when I was about 11 11 years old or so, which I've loved ever since. Uh, While I was in high school, I was introduced to a Roma punk band, uh, which led me to falling in love with Roma and Jewish music from the regions I now study. Uh, throughout this time, from the time I was about 11 to 19 years old or so, I took uh, vocal lessons where I specialized in opera and delved into jazz and musical theater as well. Uh, in my undergrad, I split my interests between a major in history and a minor in diaspora transnational studies, which I fondly now refer to as the study of immigrants, emigrants, and refugees, and another minor in music history, trying my best to emulate an ethnomusicological approach. This leads me to here, musically, now, kind of where I am. How, knowing all these genres and all these facts and nothing to do with, with them. So, uh, this will be the podcast. So where I'm not necessarily a professor, nor do I have a traditional music education in a strict sense, I'm bringing to the table a multidisciplinary approach, and, uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. <laughs> so over the course of this podcast series, I hope to just kind of expand you guys' knowledge on music, and maybe introduce you to tunes that you never really heard before or never thought existed. I want to share with you something that's captivated me for my entire life and continues to drive me every day. Like, I just, you wake up, you listen to music, you go to bed, you wake up, you listen, that's it, that's it. It's just that on repeat. I don't do anything else, I promise you. There's so much good music out there, and I just want to help you guys find it. Uh, to get to all of that, though, I need to teach you guys a bit about music history and uh, how things have gotten to the way they are now. And uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on classical Western art music genres because, from the first part, like North Americans, just, that's the stuff that you learn when you're young. If you're in any sort of music classes, that's what you learn. You learn Western classical, that's it. And, uh, you know, for people around the rest of the world, well, you're probably sick of hearing about it too. So speaking of music, what do you think of when you think of music? For people from different areas of the world, this will be a different thing. You might think of pop, you might think of rock, jazz, which is pretty much everywhere. But you also might think of something like Fado or Fado from Portugal synthwave music or even john cage's 433 a song composed entirely of silence i know it's 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 just silence go listen to it it's just silence so music has so many forms and abilities and ranges that it's really easy to find oneself listening to something and wonder is this music this brings us to our first question then what is music because you know to talk about something we kind of need to define it that's how things work So by the end of today's episode, not only are you going to know what music is, but also roughly where it began and where it's going. Contrary to popular belief that music has to have some sort of melody or patterns that it follows, music can be just about anything we ascribe the term music to. To paraphrase Philip Bullman, an ethnomusicology professor at the University of Chicago, music is any amount of sounds and silences gathered together with the intention of creating music. So that means if you want to create some music, 
you start slapping on the closest wall next to you. It doesn't even have to be in a, but you can just start, just start slapping and go, oh baby, it's, it's music time. Oh, music. So yeah, it doesn't have to be a beat or anything. If, if there's just one strong beat at all, if you just hit it once, that's it. That's music. You just made music. So, uh, you know, of course, this definition is somewhat controversial. Though for a long ass time, music was looked at through a mainly Western cultural lens. So for this podcast to work, not only do you need to know the definition of music, which there you go, it's pretty much everything, but uh, it's pertinent for you to also know some of the various terms I'll be using. So when I say like a Western cultural lens, I'm talking about what those in academia use loosely to describe a geographical area encompassing most of Western Europe. So think everywhere in Europe before, let's say, Poland. And a little bit south of there, pretty much everything that encompasses maybe the Czech Republic, or which is now technically Czechia, westward. And then west more so being North America, which is counted in the contemporary definition, but not necessarily in the historical definition. So I'm going to try to define everything as I go along, just like that. But if I do miss anything, or you're confused by something, or you want to know more about something, feel free to email me at justamusicpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, since the continent of Europe and its nations, particularly Italy, England, France, Germany, and Spain, were the main influences in Western history, most cultures they encountered throughout their history have been judged in relation to that. So this means that when some explorer from England, let's call him John Smith, because, I mean, why not? If they stumbled into now what is modern-day Kenya, he would be judging the culture and music there in relation to what he knew back home. European cultures were thought to be the most civilized and the most advanced by European nations, and so other cultures that didn't relate to or resemble them in any way were often perceived as lesser or savage in relation to European counterparts, which, you know, everybody should know at this point is wrong. I shouldn't have to tell you that, but if you did, it's, it's very wrong. Don't, don't do that. Uh, a lot of the time this meant outright disregarding the culture of the nation entirely and not allowing it to maintain artistic relevance. That means that when John Smith goes to Kenya and hears Bajuni people playing uh, traditional musics of the peoples, he will say, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, these savages and the primitive musics. It could never compare to the musics of my dear England. Long live the king. Or even, you know, bah, you call this music? No, 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 no. This sounds nothing like music. At least the music I know and love. We must show these savages how it is done. And then they would perceive to teach the Bajuni people English music in an attempt to civilize them, or at least, you know, civilize in uh, relation to England. So this sort of thinking, that one culture is superior to another, also known as ethnocentrism, is an idea that we'll find over and over again on the course of this podcast, because that's just, that's just history for you guys. Uh, what I'm hoping for you guys to do when listening to music, though, is come at it from the opposite perspective, or cultural relativism. To paraphrase Sarah Kelly at Ohio State University, cultural relativism is the view that moral or ethical systems which vary from culture to culture are all equally valid, and that no one system is better than the others, morally or by any other standard. This is based on the idea that there is no ultimate standard of good or evil, so every judgment about right and wrong is a product of society. When we apply this to music, I'm asking you all not to judge music in relation to that which exists in your culture, or what you have been taught is quote-unquote good music, a phrase that we're going to deconstruct at some point because I fucking hate it. I'm hoping by the end of this, though, whenever that is, that when you listen to a piece of music, regardless of the genre, regardless of who made it, regardless of the country it's from, the culture of origin, that when you listen to it, like when you when you actively listen to it, when you open your mind to it, maybe you listen to it a couple times, and that you go look for the value that's there. 
the definition by Philip Bullman then, music being human-defined patterns of sound and silence, allows from all sorts of music and culture throughout the world. Speaking of Bullman, did I say what he is? Do you want me to say it again? I can say it again. He's an ethnomusicologist. So some of you guys might be familiar with this term. Anybody who knows me will be familiar with this term because I never shut up about ethnomusicology. And some of you might know its predecessor musicology, but not ethnomusicology. And some of you might be new to this entirely. And uh, welcome to the podcast. I hope you know what music is. And if you didn't, well, the definition I gave you was pretty good. So now you should know. But uh, so we have to talk about musicology and ethnomusicology. Yeah. So what is musicology and how does it differ from ethnomusicology? Musicology literally breaks down into the study of music. Music, ecology, call it, well, ology being the study of, and the music being, well, I mean, music, it's, it's pretty easy. Uh, historically, this has encompassed ethnic musics as well, but as time progressed, it became to associate most with Western art musics, which, I mean, if you're talking about it in just casual conversation, it's just going to be classical music. Everybody just bumps it under classical music, and that's okay. We're going to deconstruct that. It encompasses genre differences, music theory, history, its setting within society in which it's produced, which we will learn about because it's very important, uh, the instruments involved, everything else. But again, it's mostly within the Western art music context now, and now within the broader North American art music context as well. So ethnomusicology, then, is the study of ethnic musics of people outside the sphere. So it encompasses similar areas where applicable, like, you know, the instruments used and kind of like the culture it comes from and stuff like that. But in culture, it, it kind of encapsulates more cultural anthropology into it, which helps better understand the music that you're studying. So where this does create somewhat of a divide in how we perceive music, ethnomusicologists do try in general to uh, best tailor their view to the musics and cultures that they're studying and not coming from it from a Western sort of like, I don't know, well... A, a cultural relativist standpoint. <laughs> Both fields have uh, not been around for very long, so less than 250 years, I think, with ethnomusicology being especially recent, gaining traction around the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, seeing as both fields are relatively recent, this makes music as a purely academic subject outside of strictly composition and performance also very recent. So where does it all start when we talk about music, though? Like, I mean, we're talking about Western art music currently, but where does it start? Where is, where is music? When did we start playing music? <laughs> and that's kind of hard to say. Like, really? We'd have to start at the very beginning. And I don't mean the very beginning, but the Big Bang and the gases and the planets and stuff all smashing together. And I mean, if you want to know more about that, you're going to have to ask somebody else. Because I didn't, I didn't take evolutionary biology. I'm not a science person. But, but when? When was music a thing? So... It's hard to say with music because we don't really know exactly. It's hard to put a pinpoint on it because we've been making music for longer than recorded history. Uh, some academics theorize that we've been making music since the beginning of mankind, which is pretty fucking rad. Rad as hell. <laughs> when you consider that, uh, you know, the first music was probably just some dudes banging some rocks together, having a good old time. Just going, yeah, grug, that's, uh, that's some good beats, my dude. Uh, we have, however, found flutes made from vulture bones in uh, what is now what, the Swabian Jura. I believe the Swabian Jura, because it's it's in Germany. It's uh, the area of Baden-Württemberg, Alps in Germany, that date back to around forty thousand years. So, at least forty thousand years ago, we were making flutes and stuff. So, uh, go wind instruments. 
making them some of the oldest known musical instruments on earth. Like these are the oldest ones that we have found. Like I, when I was looking in the research for, you know, other things, I found that may- maybe 41,000 years, but really like 1,000 years in a scale of that long ago doesn't really make too much of a difference. So at this point, as you know, I said, like, these are vulture bone flutes. Instruments would have been made of bone and stone at this point, because that's pretty much all we had. We didn't have metals or plastics, but definitely not plastics. But metals we definitely would have even had for another uh, roughly 30, 30 some odd thousand years, actually. So, you know, when you only have what you have, you make do with what you have, and that's about it. So besides, what is metal other than some crazy malleable stone anyways, like... You know, you pull it out of the ground, it's like, ooh, weird stone, it melts. Great, cool, I don't know, I'm gonna make it into a fucking saxophone, I guess. The oldest known song I could find, however, dates to slightly after all that. As one of the papers put it, between the 1950s and 1970s, a happy sequence of discoveries was made that really expanded our understanding of ancient musics. By ancient, I'm talking around 4000 BCE, or before the Common Era, as, you know, BC, before Christ, is no longer used in academia. Uh, fragments of clay tablets from the Sumerians were uncovered with what archaeologists believe to be musical notation and how to tune the instruments that would have been used to play it, which is, you know, pretty cool. I mean, it's one thing to have the sheet music, it's another thing to actually kind of figure out how to play it. These tablets were written in multiple languages, some having the Sumerian and Akkadian translation side by side so that the instructions could be read by their neighbors, which, I mean, it's cute as fuck if you ask me. Uh, unfortunately, no one has recreated it as far as I could find, and since I wanted for you guys to be able to listen to some music today, I found another song, not as old, but still pretty damn old. So it was published by Emmanuel Laroche in... Oh, Laroche. My French is so bad, I'm so sorry, guys. So Emmanuel Laroche in 1968, and it is called Hurrian Hymn Number no. 6. It was composed around 1400 BCE, and though we can never be 100% sure what it sounded like, because, you know, nobody's around from that time period to tell us how it sounded. It's not like we got a Sumerian guy that we could just be like, hey, hey, Jim, you know, is, this, is this right? No. So, because we'll never truly know, we've, uh, we've kind of had to academically recreate it with what we do know about sounds and what we think we know about sounds. So, uh, what, from what we know about it is it would have been played on a ram's head harp, and uh, here's a reconstruction of that. Just imagine you're in Sumeria, which is now uh, part of eastern Iraq. It's the evening, you're hot as hell, because it's pretty much always hot as hell over there. Uh, you're chilling after a long day's of work of farming or weaving or, you know, whatever you're doing back then. You've gathered around some table with some buds. Someone breaks out the ram's head harp. The harp pretty much most literally made out of 
a ram's skull with the strings leading between the horns of the skull. And lo and behold, he begins to play not Wonderwall, but this. It's an absolute jam. So the history of music between then and when we start to recognize Western folk music, or Western art music, sorry, is a little hazy. So from what we know, we know that the ancient Greeks during this time often imitated musical forms similar to what came before them, which was then imitated by the Romans. Uh, but what it actually sounded like, we don't really know. We do know, however, that music systems were also being developed in India at the time from the Vedic music systems, from about 2000 to 1600 BCE. In 1200 BCE, a bunch of drums had also been developed, and by 500 BCE, when Buddhism originated, that the music that had originated in India had grown to influence the early Buddhist music too, which is pretty cool. So, to avoid this specific episode being 10 hours long, I'm going to revisit Indian musics when I get to that episode, because I plan to do, like, a a continental thing, start North America, and just start working my way around the world with musical genres. But let it be known that that was happening, and it was crazy influential. <laughs> so from there, again, it's hard to say what was actually happening with music, especially in the Western kind of art music sphere, but till about 500 CE. So we're going from 500, you know, BCE, so before the Common Era, to 500 CE. So that's about a thousand years, because we don't use AD anymore either, just, just letting you guys know. So slightly before this, Constantine the Great, the Roman Emperor from 306 to 337 CE, decides, after so many years of Christians being persecuted for being Christian, you know, that Christianity was not only to be widely accepted through the kingdom uh, at the time, but it also became the state religion after Constantine's own conversion. So, you know, if you wanted to know how Christianity became the hot new religion to follow, uh, that was uh, Emperor Constantine. So this was a massive undertaking on the Empire's behalf, as the Roman Empire under Constantine came to encompass of what we know is the entirety of the Mediterranean. It's the whole damn thing. It's so fucking big if you look at it on a map. So for those who don't know entirely what the Mediterranean is, which I mean, to be fair, I've met a couple people who don't know what the Mediterranean is. So uh, it includes, and it's not limited to, all of what we know now of Spain, France, Italy, Turkey, Greece, Israel, North Africa, most of Egypt, Syria, the Balkans, Western Saudi Arabia, and about half of England. <laughs> now, the reason why this is important is because Christianity not only defines what music gets to be made for a hell of a long time, but the church is also a big proponent for writing things down, which is important in recovering history because we gotta have shit to recover in order to piece bits of history together. And written testimonies, although well still biased, testimonies of any variety will always be biased. They're first-person perspectives of what's going on, so including the music that be, that's being played. So with all that history, <laughs> let's get back to music. So what do we know about early church music? Because that's really what we're going to be looking at here, is that there was a lot of Greek and Jewish influence, which makes sense, because uh, Rome took a lot of their music styles from the Greeks and in general, but also Judaism, which is, you know, the basis of Christianity, if you didn't know. Their Tanakh is uh, legit the Old Testament. <laughs> so Jesus was Jewish, and so musical traditions of those early Christians would have been emblematic of that. It is uh, important to note, however, that the flavor of church music was usually influenced by the area that those Christians lived, and the music that existed around them already. So between the time of Constantine and the development of the Gregorian chant, then we don't know much about the history of music, uh, due to there being you know historical problems, because you know, shit does keep happening, regardless of whether or not you want it to. But uh, the, G the Germanic invasions, they've had something to do with that between the 6th and 7th centuries. Uh, I mean, if your ass is getting beat like a drum, you're probably less focused on playing the drums, right? You know. We do know, however, that our next genre was developed between the 5th and 9th centuries and lasted to uh, around the medieval period, until the 1400s or so. So anyway, we get to the invention of the... Uh, wah, 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 wah. 
music or a Gregorian chant, also known as a plain chant, if you want to get real technical. So uh, also known as monophonic liturgical chant. If you want to get really, 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 really technical, uh, yeah, we aren't going to get into that. But the monophonic part is really kind of important. So Gregorian chant, named for Pope Gregory I, was uh, originally developed as a music that was meant to help sing the divine service, which took place nine times a day. So imagine you got to do this thing. Imagine just any piece of long literature, pretty, pretty dang long. You got to do it nine times a day. You're going to get bored. You're going to get so damn bored. Of just, just standing and being like, God is good. God is great. He gave us bread. It's pretty rad. So they kind of invented chant as a way to do it in a way that was, I guess, more enjoyable and uh, delivered it to a wider audience. So in music theory, monophonic means that the music is comprised of a single melody sung or played by one person without a harmony or underlying chords. I know that's a lot, a lot to take in, but if you sit there in your room or in your car or in your office or in a public bathroom, wherever the fuck you are listening to this, and then you sing one note followed by another note pretty close to it, and then another note. That means you've just composed your first monophonic melody. Congratulations, come get your Tony Award. I'm so proud of you. So this isn't obviously the invention of singing, you know, entirely, because singing definitely did exist before that, and, you know, singing with chords would come after that, but this is what Gregorian music is. So, moreover, Gregorian music is usually moved stepwise. So what that means is that the notes are pretty much always adjacent to one another. So if, so if I were to sing, like, Do, Re, that's, that's stepwise. It moves by one note. It doesn't move by like six or seven notes because that's just it's too wild for the Gregorians. They're just trying to sing their religious music. It might lead them to temptation. We don't know. So for all the people out there who don't have rhythm, this actually might be the genre for you too because the Gregorian chants didn't have it. You kind of just held notes for as long as you, as long as you wanted. It's pretty rad. It's pretty nuts. You can go nuts with it. Just not too nuts because this music is for Jesus, remember? <laughs> So not surprisingly, it is during this time that we also see the introduction of what will evolve into modern sheet music eventually, but for now it's kinda underdeveloped. Uh, I find it hard to believe that there are some people that haven't seen any musical notation before, uh, unless they're blind, which I mean 110%, I get you, that's, that you just can't do it. But uh, for those who don't know, your standard musical staff is five lines with four spaces in between, both of which you can place notes on, which is, some people don't know that, pretty, pretty wild. On the beginning of the staff, you'll see a clef, which uh, one of them, the treble clef, looks like a G. So it's kind of fancy and curly and big and takes up the whole thing. The other one is called the bass clef or the C clef because it looks like a backward C with two dots, which is used for the lower notes in the register. So treble is for like people who sing real high, bass is for people who sing real low. The notes are little ovals, so you know they can be shaded in or they're not always shaded in, depending on the note they're using, with little sticks coming off of them. So, and when placed on the staff, they tell the reader what tone to play and how long it is. So that's that's your introduction to sheet music. That's pretty much all you need to know. Usually there'll also be a time signature that tells you how fast or slow to play the notes in relation to one another, which, you know, can... Well, I mean, sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. It depends on the form of music that you're uh, you're looking at. So, Gregorian chant wouldn't have had one. And there are also just tons and 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 tons of volume and speed and markings and durations and stuff for modern sheet music. But back then, we wouldn't have had these. We had just some we had just some dots so the sheet music that we're talking about during the time of the Gregorian chant is basic as hell we had lines uh sometimes five or less in the staff depending on who was writing it which i mean congratulations for inconsistency and you had a dot which denoted approximately where you were on the scale and the line to the next dot so you like you're looking at essentially what looks like a prophet's kind of graph but with dots on it to show you where you are so beyond that though there really wasn't anything there as such it's 
pretty damn hard to figure out how it actually sounded. Uh, what note does it start on? How fast is it? How long do I actually hold this note? How loud am I being? Why am I asking you guys all these questions? So that being said, humans are persistent as hell, so we definitely have some songs that scholars have tried to recreate with varying amounts of success. The one I'm going to play for you guys in a, se in a second, it's from the uh, Gregorian Chorus of Paris. So it's for a Good Friday Passion Service, so Passion of the Christ. If you don't know what that is, you can look that one up. I'm not here for religious reasons. I'm here for musical reasons. But uh, here's a clip from it. Because obviously harmonies and chords were popularized at some point, we see an interesting progression then of church music because polyphonic chant did become a thing at about the 11th century or so. So polyphonic doesn't mean that there was harmony yet, but there was at least two melodies being sung by two separate parties, which is pretty cool. So, I mean, if you were doing that thing earlier where you were singing a bunch of notes and then your buddy came in and was like, hey man, can I get you a beer? And you were like, hey man, sing something with me. And you and you both became just singing this this just collection of notes that's technically polyphonic. It's basic cell. Again, you guys won a Tony. Congratulations. But uh, that that's it. That's polyphony. This did, however, pave the way for homophony, though. So, which was uh, music composed of multiple lines, so it had harmonies, so you had a note, and then some notes underneath that complemented that note, which is pretty nice. Uh, from there, I'm going to skip over Mass, like the Christian Mass, because Mass is even mass is essentially implementing you know these principles in a further religious way. Uh, for those who don't know, the Christian Mass is composed of a few key elements, the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus, and the... Stay, I believe. So these portions be, you know, accompanied by varying styles of chants. They became more standardized over time. So sticking with polyphony, though, and uh, with the church is how we get to the Renaissance. Now, I know, I know what you guys are thinking when you think of Renaissance. You're thinking of the art. You're thinking of Leonardo da Vinci and Donatello, Michelangelo and Raphael. We're talking about that Renaissance. But uh, did you also know that there was Renaissance music? With the invention of the printing press in 1439, I think, it became much easier to distribute music, and thus music was going everywhere and inspiring people to write more music, and so it just was music on top. Music is pretty rad. So on top of this, though, the Renaissance embodied a period of rebirth. That's pretty much literally what Renaissance means. So it was the rebirth of ancient Greek and Roman thinking and humanism. So humanism is kind of the idea that we don't need to think about the church all the time, all the time always, because that's pretty much what people did up to that point. They're just thinking about Jesus all the time. But uh, that humans have an influence in what they do, and so people started looking at the old gods and everything, and it was, it was a pretty good time. So there was a ton of secular music that started to be made in relation to this. Secular meaning, like, not influenced by the church. My personal favorite style that was invented during this time was opera. So a genre where you fall in love, you die, 
or you do both. Opera was created as a means of trying to resurrect the musics of ancient Greece. There was a harmony, there was a polyphony, there was tons of voices, it was crazy colorful time for music. And the music that was composed was usually crazy dynamic, following the guidelines of ancient Greece. Uh, a lot of early operas were written about Greek tragedies, so Daphne, the first of all compositions to be called opera, written by Jacopo Perry and Ottavio Renuccini, was uh, performed during Carnival in or Carnival in 1598, and of course was about the Greek tragedy by the same name. The main characteristics of Renaissance music. So music based on modes. So we had something similar to an octave, an octave being eight notes, uh, but they were usually, I believe, seven, and they didn't have semitones. It was just all tones. So it was like tone, 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 tone. But music based on modes. Richer texture with four or more independent melodic parts being performed simultaneously, which is, you know, pretty cool considering we were only doing one not too long ago. Uh, these interweaving melodic lines, also called polyphony, is uh, one of the defining features of Renaissance music. So, like, you had you had a lot you had a lot of people singing, a lot of people singing all the time. It's pretty great. Uh, blending rather than contrasting melodic lines, so people actually tried to put things together that sounded good, as opposed to things that just uh, sounded. Uh, harmony uh, that placed a greater concern on smooth flow of music and uh, progression of chords. So, for those of you who don't know what a chord is, chords are usually constructed of various sounds within a scale. So it's usually three to four notes, and the notes kind of complement one another, and they're all built around one central note. Uh, common chords are fourth, fifth, and I believe sixth, sixth, no, fourth, fifth, eighth. It's been forever since I've done musical theory, and I don't want to talk to you guys about it because it's crazy boring, and I don't want to bore you guys. We're going to skip over that. But uh, musical instruments during this time that also kind of exploded onto the scene, so pluck string instruments when we're thinking like violins and lutes and pluck string keyboards, kind of like a harpsichord, as well as some really early woodwinds were being developed, trying to keep up with the style of uh, art. We were going with the style of music, so complex musical instruments, complex artistic style. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci actually himself invented something called the uh, viola organista, which used keys to move a belt across strings similar to a violin or a cello. So you know when you see somebody with a violin and they're playing with a bow? It was kind of like that big and like a piano. <laughs> It was it was big. It was big large. You can find a picture. I might link a picture underneath this episode because, man, they big large, and you guys should know how big large this thing is. So just because I think contrast is important, I'm going to play you guys some early opera and then some non-opera from this period so you have a solid idea of how much music changed during the Renaissance period.
The 1600s, however, brought another change into the music scene because this is what we define as the beginning of the Baroque era, which started with the century more broadly and ended, as one of my professors put it, precisely on the second, the absolute second that Johann Sebastian Bach died. So Baroque music can be described as having arch-symmetrical melodies, regular meter, gentle, gentle pulses to it, a pervasive imitation in four parts, so soprano, alter, tenor, bass. For people who don't know what those are, soprano is the highest register of singing that there is. Then there's alto, which is slightly underneath that. Then tenor, and then bass is the real low voice. Real, real, real low voice. Uh, acapella is the norm, so that means singing without uh, any sort of musical accompaniment. Or, you know, one instrument, and that's about it. Uh, highly ornamental in style, so people were putting notes all over the place, but they just sounded great, so that's pretty cool. It emphasizes contrast in high, low, fast, slow, so you may have big jumps in your music then, like from, I don't know, one note to like six notes above it, and that's that's it, baby, that's, that's the style. So Bach was especially important in this consideration of Baroque music, because he uh, more or less embodied the genre. Bach, of course, I'm talking about Johann Sebastian. I once lost marks on an exam because I didn't put his full name, so I guess uh, I guess you guys should know it too. He was born in 1685 to a German family of musicians. Uh, Bach spent most of his life as a composer for the church because back then, musicians were paid by patrons who would sponsor their work, so the church was a sponsor for many, including Bach. Uh, over his life, he wrote hundreds of cantatas, heaps of church music, hymns, sacred songs, and many other things. The dude is estimated to have written, like, 1,128 pieces of music or something in his life with an extra 20 or so that were unfinished when he died. So, like, it's a lot of music, guys. Uh, most of his music was written for keyboard instruments, so harpsichord at the time, which is a plucked... It's kind of like a piano. If you think of a piano, except for instead of the strings on the inside being hit with a tiny mallet that's where the keys are connected to, it's plucked by a little a little plucker that, that, yeah, that you activate when you hit the keys. So most of his music was written for that, but then uh, he also wrote a lot of organ pieces, which are amazing. The instruments also kind of add another element to Baroque music, uh, which is sort of a lack of volume control. <laughs> well, so we have this beautiful arch symmetrical melody in regular meter, but it's all either coming at you like a foghorn, or or just or real real tiny, real tiny quiet musics from the harpsichord because uh, organ was big loud, harpsichord was tiny soft, <laughs> and that's pretty much what you guys need to know about them. So all of the style elements I've told you about, as well as this lack of volume, can be found in one of uh, Bach's most recognized pieces, or the Toccata in Fugue in D minor, which, I mean, most of you are going to recognize as the Halloween song. Uh, here's a clip of it.
again, I'm not going to cover like a bunch of music theory because first, this isn't a music theory podcast because that would like I can't think of anything more boring than hearing somebody describe music theory. Uh, but also, I just fucking hate music theory so much. Please release me from this prison of lines and squiggles telling me to do things that I just want to play music. But uh, a bunch of stuff of ha- stuff just happened in music music theory specifically during this time. So opera opera houses started popping up in different places. Which is which is very exciting, and uh, they're mostly for nobles, unfortunately, because you know those are the people who could pay to go to the opera and have these big, beautiful houses. But it they did become a thing. Uh, recitative was a big thing, specifically in theory, that developed during this time. So that's where the singer kind of speaks sings. It's less melody and more meant to bridge arias, and arias like a more like big sweeping piece within an opera. The recitative is just kind of like, oh, and then I saw a dog and it was really really cute, and oh my god, this dog, like things like that, you know. So that's, I might be able to find you an example, but I don't know if I'll link it. Uh, arias then too became a big thing because uh, they kind of they were the big they were the big thematic pieces, you know. That's what you watch an opera for. You don't go to an opera to hear the people speak sing. You go to an opera to hear the people sing the good songs, and the arias were the big good songs. So they have melody, uh, they're more definable uh, than recitative, and usually more interesting, to be fair. Um, also, oh, my favorite during this time was the castrato. So the castrato, we're going to have a little castrato history moment. So it became a common position in this time during music. The castrato pretty much is exactly what it sounds like. So it's a man or a boy who I guess becomes a man at some point, as many boys do, uh, who has been castrated and is used to maintain a sort of youth-like voice due to the lack of hormones you'd be getting from the offending testicles. So during this time, <laughs> and actually times before that, you know, women weren't allowed to be on stage. It was it was considered a really vulgar profession to be on stage, unfortunately. And women just weren't allowed to do that because you were seen as a, uh, a harlot or a, a, a prostitute or a, or a whore. <laughs> so to fill the void that was left by having fewer altos and little to no mezzo-sopranos and sopranos, castratos were often used. Uh, the life of a castrato was uh, pretty, pretty interesting, uh, to say the least. Uh, castratos often resulted from families that had a boy with a great voice who also didn't have a lot of money. So they would send their sons for this procedure, if you could call it that back then, who would then be a singer for the rest of their natural life, essentially, and, you know, generate money for the family. The operation was performed by a doctor, usually referred to as a Norcino, I believe is how it's pronounced. My Italian also isn't that great. I only speak two languages, and one of them is English, and the other one I don't even speak very well. So uh, a Norcino, we're going to call them. It would essentially soak the boy in a warm bath to quote-unquote soften the tissues and then sedate them by some means. So we don't really know what they would do because obviously anesthetic wasn't didn't exist in the 1500s, but you know. Uh, so given that this practice was banned by the church, there's only a few depictions, like pictures of it to survive. But I mean, really, as basic of a procedure as it is, do we really need pictures of it? Like you kind of... I don't have to tell you what it's like for somebody to get their, their nuts chopped. I don't, I don't need to tell you that. Uh, socially, the castrata occupied a weird part, so you were a star singer, uh, well-known, talented, and what have you, but also a social outcast for a number of reasons. So first and foremost was the appearance. So you can imagine, like, if you take take the hormones out of somebody that are supposed to help you grow and everything, uh, that, that usually facilitate puberty and everything, that your body kind of grows weird. So the castrata's body grew in a sort of odd way. Uh, their limbs would be extra long, but their torso might not be long or might be too long or too short. Their chest was usually sunken. The fat distribution of the body usually resembled a woman. So they had wide hips and sometimes titties or at least, you know, breasts, I guess that you could, they would, they would look like a weird boyish man, woman person. And that's, you know, 
kind of unfortunate during that time because we don't have anything like trans rights or any, well i mean we don't have really any rights at all at that point so you're kind of walking around looking like this and nobody wants to be with you because it's just it's just not it's this not it's not the style man so already you see uh one of these guys on the street and you're like well there sir uh you, you don't look like a grown human person you you, you look kind of odd but you know that's that's just how it was for them. So there's also the issue of because, like, they've been castrated, they couldn't have kids either. So at least in Italy, they could never marry because marriage was the whole view. Because, you know, you could only get married to have children because Jesus is watching. So the worst situation was, you know, how they were treated, as one author described them from during the time. So this is from this is from a description of a guy, I think, in the 1500s, who is describing the castrados in, like, some form of not musical dictionary, but it was like, kind of like a musical book or something. So, to quote him, they are an abominable tribe. They are past the sense of honor, who are neither men nor women. They are jealous, despicable, fierce, effeminate, gluttons, covetous, cruel, inconstant, suspicious, furious, insatiable, and they cry like children if they are left out of entertainment. So, it's kind of cruel. The knife has made them chaste. But this chastity is of no service to them. Their lust makes them furious, which is which is impotent, sterile, and unfruitful. So that's, you know, that's kind of your life. That's how people see you. Like, it's really, it's not great, you know? I mean, you're, you're balling, but it's just, it's not great. <laughs> so suffice to say, although you were great at performing, uh, life and everything else kind of sucked for Castrato. Uh, given all this, it's no wonder why the practice hasn't continued to, you know, the 20th century. Uh, that being said, it did continue much longer than you're thinking. Like, if you pick a date, you're going to be wrong. I can almost assure you on this. Uh, Alessandro Moreschi, I believe his name. Like, because, yeah, it's spelled like Pesci, like Joe Pesci. So, yeah, Alexandro, or Alessandro Moreschi is the last known castrato to have existed. He was born in 1858 and died in 1922. So, the Roaring 20s saw the last, last castrato. I'm going to play a little bit for you guys so you know what it sounds like, because, like... It does get high. Like, there are, there are definitely, like, upper register parts there, but it's not entirely what you guys are thinking. So here's, here's a little bit. So 1750 marked the end of the Baroque period, which took its place afterwards. That would be the classical era. So yes, there was an actual classical period. We in North America tend to call all, you know, music, Baroque, Romantic, classical, Gregorian, opera, and everything between classical, but there was an actual classical era from 1750 to about 1830. Uh, the classical period departed from the Baroque era in terms of what I'm going to call the drama of it all. So classical music was about predictability and calmness. Uh, not high drama in contrast, like in the Baroque era. Uh, there was a lot of ornamentation, but it was all very straightforward. 
Um, this is a period that was divine, defined in history by the Christian Enlightenment. So think like John Locke and Benjamin Franklin or B. Franks for for for, for short, because that's just that's my homie B. Franks. So it was big on logic and sense and predictability and all these things. So in terms of actual music, actual music, it meant that there was more balance and symmetry to it. So moderation, simplicity, clarity, and discernible form. So no more of that wild jumping around, freaking big old sounds and themes and stuff. So themes and variations became increasingly popular in music during this time. So the style of music during this period was really defined by the four movement sonata. Uh, the first movement was often fast, introducing the themes of the piece that would then be used for the rest of the piece. So theme is just kind of like think of any melody think you can think of kind of a melody as a theme so that would be introduced in the beginning uh for those who don't know yeah a theme or motif is kind of like a short melody that the rest of the piece is based around to borrow the hip modern term uh it kind of gets chopped and skewed <laughs> around for the rest of the piece thus forming the variations uh the second movement contrasts the first because it's the slow movement it punctuates the themes and and begins the variations the third movement is a minuet which gets repeated, and the fourth movement is usually a combination of the second and third. So that's it. And that's <laughs> that's what people played during this era a lot. So our boy Mozart was particularly good at this style, having composed at least 18 sonatas in his life for piano alone. Uh, when many of us think of classical music, we think of Mozart as kind of like the prime example for a good reason. So Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was born in Salzburg, Austria in 1756, died in 1791 over the course of his short life. So he was only 35 years uh, when he died. Pretty unfortunate. Mozart wrote some 600 pieces of music. So consider that with like, you know, the 1100 that Bach wrote. And he was like, I think twice his age, at least, if not into his 70s when he died. That's, that's pretty impressive. Um, he even wrote some operas, so he wrote The Magic Flute, Don Giovanni, The Marriage of Figaro, which is a fantastic opera, you guys should go see it, it's very funny. Um, he wrote quartets, quintets, and choral music. He was engaged as a court musician, uh, that is composing music for a royal court. He was engaged at the court of Salzburg at only 17 years old. What were you doing at 17 years old? I was just eating Cheetos and playing Final Fantasy a lot, like shit, like save some for the rest of us, boy. But, uh, yeah, like, I talk a lot about Mozart, but, but it's just, he was considered, like, the best classical era composer of all time. But that doesn't mean that he was the only one that we have. We also have Joseph Hayden, which is, like, the father of the modern symphony and uh, the father of the string quartet. We have Franz Schubert, who also died relatively young at 31. Schubert did a lot of things, but he's best known for popularizing the genre of Lieder, like German art song, which Lieder is composed around usually a poem and then you compose a song around it, which was really, really nice. Um... One classical era composer, though, who I have left out, uh, one of our one of our homeboys, uh, Beethoven. Uh, I've done this for a reason because uh, Beethoven is really the bridge between classical and romantic era. Uh, that's actually why I've kept all my examples till now because I want you guys to be able to hear the difference. Because if you don't know, if you don't have that direct contrast, you might not be able to hear it. But uh, Beethoven graciously provides us a lot of different things. So we have so we have Mozart. I'm going to play some Mozart and then I'm going to play like an early Beethoven song and then I'm going to play like a late Beethoven song. And I'll be right now.
you see Beethoven was only like 15 years old or no he wasn't 15 no he was a baby no he was only 15 years younger than Mozart and actually like looked to him as sort of like a massive source of inspiration and you can't really blame the guy like you know knowing Mozart uh Beethoven famously was deaf or went deaf over the course of his life we aren't entirely sure which already stacked the cards against him but we also now know that he was likely black which is pretty incredible if you consider during the time like this would have been like it would have been very hard to find employment in high arts during this time if you were african-american or i mean not african-american because uh, he wasn't american huh but uh yeah we we guess that he probably would have been black due to his father being part belgium specifically of the moorish variety uh from probably an area of africa that was occupied by belgium but we aren't entirely sure um historical depictions we've seen of him up to this point like up to this point in like our modern history usually are pretty white but there's one such description of him well, actually, there's a couple such descriptions, but one I picked specifically just because the wording was was so good. But uh, a description of him back during the time claimed that he was so dark that people dubbed him L'Espagnol, or The Spaniard. So taking into account these things working against him as black compo- composers weren't normalized during the classical era and, you know, romantic era spheres, um, as well as also having suffered some pretty damn abusive upbringing, like his father was an absolute dick to him. Uh, he makes for the perfect candidate to start off the romantic era with, or as I personally like to call it, emo classical which ran from approximately 1800 to 1910 the romantic era itself is kind of self-descriptive in its naming it's lavish lavishly romantic passionate music this isn't to say of course that mozart or hayden or bach weren't passionate but about what they did but unless the composition specifically called for it there wasn't precisely a heavy delve into emotion in the same way that the romantic era had uh, as all of this music pretty much relates to what's going on socially and politically during the time, romantic music focused on people's fascination with nature and the macabre. So nature, because uh, we were slowly moving away from it in this time during the Industrial Revolution and macabre because uh, the romantic era was fascinated with dark topics. This is the time when we're talking like Edgar Allan Poe and Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein and whatnot. So they were doing their famous works and uh, a time that was fashionable to look like you were suffering for tuberculosis, which, uh, if you don't know, is a disease that usually kills the person by filling their lungs full of fluid and then coughing up blood. And it's a very bad time. Don't look up pictures of it. So our boy, Beethoven, leads the introduction to this era with some of his work, but then towards the later part of his life slides into the Romantic era more fully. Uh, You can hear the balance in his music and, you know, how some of it sticks to the more rigid qualities of the classical era and then how some of it is more free. And that kind of freedom is really one of the big things that, that defines the Romantic era. So when we talk about the traits of the Romantic era specifically, we're talking, of course, about the ones I've mentioned, but there's also the addition of music being more personal meaning that composers were writing for themselves. They weren't writing as much for churches and kings and stuff at this point. They were writing, for, they wanted they wanted to write stuff for the soul, man. Music for the soul. So we're talking, you know, there's different personalities, personalities emerging through music at this time, which is pretty great. And it's no coincidence because the Romantic period then also lines up with the era of nationalisms. So this is the period uh, which lasted around the same length as the Romantic period. It happened to be European mostly to begin with. So where European nations were becoming nations and they weren't just collections of smaller kingdoms anymore. So I think like, for example, in 1853, I believe Italy finally became Italy, like the kingdom of Italy, as we know of one big country today, but still a kingdom, you know, which is pretty cool. So languages and arts became more divided per nation, which give gave also rise to national anthems. Um, sound-wise, we're also hearing extremes in music again, thank God, which uh, high-low registers and piano and interesting melodies, not meant to be just pleasant background music, but attention-grabbing foreground music. Uh, music written for personal study techniques, for example, music that was meant to exercise one hand. 
So, like, you have uh, Chopin, who wrote a whole study on what to do with your right hand when playing music. I might link a piece. I'm not entirely sure, but it's great. But we're also talking, this was the era with the invention of the pianissimo and the fortissimo, <laughs> which is the very, very, very quiet and the very, very, very loud, respectively. So, opera at this time also gets more dramatic, uh, with some of the most recognizable being the Ring Cycle by Wagner, uh, containing the Valkyrie, Siegfried, Das Rheingold, and Gotodamerung. Uh, it's a 16-hour opera, the whole thing. Don't, I, I saw one of them once. It was five and a half hours long. My ass was numb by the end of it, sitting in the fucking cinema seat. Don't do it. Don't do it. So, La Traviata by Giuseppe Verdi. Very good opera. La Bohème and Madame Butterfly, both by Giacomo Puccini. Very good. And then uh, one of the most recognizable of all time, uh, Carmen by Georges Bizet, which I will play a little bit of here actually right now. Unfortunately, though, as uh, times were changing, music did too, and so we entered the 1900s, we meet what I'm going to call the final big era of classical music, because although classical music does continue until today, I think we're in the post, post-modern era right now. I, I can't say. I don't, I don't listen to it that much, but I think we're in post-modern. But uh, we're going to be doing different episodes on those, because, I mean, it's just a lot to talk about. So Impressionism overlapped with like this era that we're going to talk about, though, in the early 1900s. So uh, that would have been late 1800s, early 1900s, I think. It's pretty important. Um, impressionism, much like the art style by the same name, prioritized tone color, or how one plays a note, with what instrument and uh, the pictures and scenes that are created by the music, essentially. So instead of relying on easily identified melodies and motifs, impressions, uh, impressionists try to create... Uh, scenes and moods, more or less, via the sound pictures, rather than relying on directly telling us a story. Uh, in a painting or drawing, Impressionism suggests that something is there with brushstrokes rather than painting something, like, realistic. So in music, this works by assigning different qualities to different instruments, uh, which changes between composers and even between pieces by the same composer. For example, in the Jean Sibelius uh, song Tapiola, or in the or Tapiola, or uh, in the realm of Tapio, uh, it's kind of meant to evoke the idea of the forest and the things that are inside the forest, both animal and not. So it's Heike Clemetti, uh, Heike Clemetti, 
Put it, uh, Tapiola contained the scent of the marshes, the flight of eagles and strange creatures, and the rich poetry of woodlands. Um, hoofs the bad bad days, Carl Ekman. It's 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 spelled H U F V U D S T A D S B L A D E T apostrophe S. So hoof the blood Carl Ekman uh, was most was 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 the most analytical. Uh, he noticed the variations which developed from the initial melody of the work. Uh, so, like an artist wields their brush or pencil or pastels, so does the impressionist wield notes on the page. Uh, this is specifically important to note. Uh, because impressionism then paves the way for more modern music that does not necessarily have to rely on strict narrative in order to be successful, which is nice. So now the only reason I'm, I'm not going to go far beyond the pursuits of classical music is because this is about the time that we see a split between classical music dominating the public sphere and other musical genres dominating the public sphere. So, but rest assured, you know, we will continue it. I guess just as a schedule or set of plan for this podcast, like we're getting to the end of this now. So for a schedule... I guess I'll let you know. The first couple episodes are going to be introductory. Uh, so we have this one now. Just so y'all are caught up to the speed. Nobody can accuse me of not talking about quote-unquote real music. Um, but the next couple are going to be about like the politics of music. So why music is inherently political and how it's important. Uh, and how we listen to music. Because how we listen to music is very important. Or maybe I'll switch around the order. I'm not entirely sure. But after that, I promise we're going to get into some more meaty topics of North American genres. And then some Euro genres. And then Middle Eastern genres. We're going to do South American genres. In the middle, I might stick some other genres. Who knows? But uh, that's all. That's all for just a music podcast this week. Uh, hope you've learned something new. I uh, hope you've heard something that you like. If you haven't, there's always next week where we'll be talking about how to listen to music. Yeah, I guess I'll stick with how to listen to music. And in the meantime, uh, if, if, if you'd like to suggest a topic, I would love uh, nothing more than to answer musical questions or, you know, get topic suggestions for you. So, like, if you'd like to suggest a topic or have a question, feel free to drop me a line at justamusicpodcast at gmail.com. That's, and that's it. I hope you guys had fun. And I will see you next week, I guess. Bye.